Luke chapter 2. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to be looking at a passage in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be comparing it to a, a series of passages in the Old Testament a thousand years before Jesus was born in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. How many of you guys knew that the Bible is one consistent storyline all the way through? From Genesis to Revelation, we find a storyline all the way through. And in the Old Testament, we have symbols and we have events. And all of those things point forward to Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at a storyline in the Old Testament that points forward to Jesus on Christmas morning. I hope you guys will be able to see it and follow along. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 2. You might be familiar with this passage in Luke chapter 2 because it's, if you, how many of you guys have seen uh, Peanuts Charlie Brown Christmas? You guys seen that one, right? So at one point towards the end of this, uh, this little Christmas story, uh, Charlie Brown's trying to figure out the true meaning of Christmas. And Linus, his faithful friend, reads a portion of Luke chapter 2 explaining that this is the true meaning of Christmas. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 3 through 16, and then I'm going to give you guys a, a, a chance to just share some of the things that stand out to you in this story, and then we're going to travel back in our Bible bus a thousand years before Jesus and see a story that points forward to this very event. So it records this. Before this, we see that, that uh, Israel is, is overseen by the Roman Empire, and one of the, the leaders in the Roman Empire decrees that they would do a census throughout the land. So basically, everybody needs to go to their, the, the land where their genealogy, uh, come, where they come from, to that town, and basically sign a document saying, I'm alive. And that's where we find this passage. And it says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What stands out to you in this Christmas morning passage according to uh, Luke? Who was, by, by, by chance, he was a doctor who was a Gentile and became a missionary. And then he wrote this gospel. Um, but what stands out to you in his account of Christmas morning 
If you're new here, we love awkward silence. We do this every once in a while. It always takes a few minutes until somebody gets brave and then everybody wants to talk. What stands out to you in this Luke account, Luke chapter 2? Our king is born, and it's a ba- this baby is the king, and it's this baby that people have been looking forward to for a long time, it seems. Yes. What else? The first announcement was to shepherds who, who weren't really very highly esteemed in that time. They were actually a little bit, like, sketchy. In that time, shepherds, like, were, there was a lot of rumors going around that they would, that if the shepherds come into your neighborhood, they might steal your packages from Amazon Prime and (laughs) that kind of stuff, right? They were those type of reputation, and so it's just pretty interesting that, that he comes to these shepherds, these shady, reputationed characters in their time. Yeah, very good. Very specific. It was in Jerusalem, in the town of David called Bethlehem. And that's very important because that was prophesied in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would come from Bethlehem. Yeah. Very good. What else do you guys see in that? Yeah, you have these guys that could be on, like, Survivor, right? And they're out there in the wilderness. They sleep under the stars. They're not afraid of, of, of cold or wolves or any of those things. And yet they have fear. Yeah. They're, they're, they're wowed. They're, they're, they're speechless. They don't know what to do, right? And the angel comforts them and says, fear not. I bring good news. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not corrupt, and it's very humble, right? It's not, it's, he didn't come, you know, with, a, with a, a, a big robe and a bunch of, of anything. He just he came as a baby in a manger to, and if you, if you guys didn't know, Mary and Joseph were poor, right? When they dedicate Jesus, they, they dedicated him with pigeons. If you look in the Old Testament, that's a symbol of, of poverty, when you don't have enough to dedicate him with something more, right? So you have these poor family who gives birth to this, child in a manger and yet all of this excitement and not everybody's excited but the shepherds are excited and the angels are excited and his parents are excited and what is all of this about the thing i wanted us to see this morning is what we have in this story according to luke is we have the glory of god which shows up in the city of David called Bethlehem in the form of a baby. The glory of God shows up in the city of David in the form of a baby in this city called Bethlehem, and this is a big deal. What we're going to look at this morning, the title of our message, we've been looking at reasons why Jesus came. We're going to look at Jesus came to reveal God's glory. And what we're going to do first is I want to just kind of explain a little bit. What does that mean when you say 
Jesus came to reveal God's glory. That's kind of Christianese, as we call it, right? That's like stuff Christians say that no one else knows what they're talking about, right? So we'll talk about that, and then we'll go back in our Bible bus. And if you've never been in the Bible bus, then you probably didn't grow up as a Christian in the 80s and 90s. That was an old cartoon where they used to get in this bus and go back and look at old stories from the Old Testament. But we're going to jump in our Bible bus. We're going to go back a thousand years to when King David also brought the glory of God to the city of God, which is King David's city, Bethlehem, a thousand years before Jesus. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus came to reveal God's glory? Probably the best way, the, the most unchristianese way to say this is that when Jesus came to reveal God's glory, he came to make God's greatness, his splendor, his magnificence known to all the people or to go public. He brings God's greatness public. If you had the greatest invention in the entire world, I mean, if you thought of an idea, maybe some of you guys have, can relate to this. You've, you just thought of like this idea that's going to change everybody's life, right? And you had this product, and you had the ability to manufacture it, and you had a prototype. Really, all you have is a prototype of the greatest thing, but if nobody knows about it, you're probably not going to get very rich, right? So what we do is we want, to, we want everybody to know about this great product that we've created. So we, we, what we do things, we try to market it maybe on Facebook or online, or you go on Shark Tank, right? And you, and you say, hey, I got this great product. How do I get this thing to go public? So what we're saying is that when Jesus came, he came to make the greatness of who God is public. He wanted it to go viral. He wanted the whole world, it says, to know that this God is the God of heavens, is wonderful, is grand. And so when we say Jesus came to reveal the glory of God, we're saying Jesus came to make the greatness of God public, to everybody to know. Now when we go back a thousand years into history, we start in 1 Samuel, we're going to see a story, and we, well, you need to know a couple things before we start. In the Old Testament, there's a ton of symbols and there's events that happen. And like I said, they all point forward to Jesus. One of the main symbols, a lot of the symbols have to do with the temple and those types of things. But one of these big symbols is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, there's a picture of it here, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Maybe all you know about the Ark of the Covenant is because you saw Indiana Jones and, and, and the, the Raiders of the Last Ark, or what's the name of the, the Indiana? The Lost Ark. I totally failed. All my credibility is gone. It, but, but, but anyways, the Ark of God is, it actually, it, from Indiana Jones, comes from the Bible. And it's this, 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 this Ark and it's, it's four feet wide, it's two and a half feet tall, and it's two and a half feet deep. It's overlain with gold, as you can see. And you can see in the corners there's these gold rings. And those gold rings are there for a purpose so that you would be able to put the, the, the poles in the ring. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some notes here. And in your notes, we see that the ark, the ark of God, it points to the glory of God. It represents the presence of God and the glory of God, the greatness of God, a display uh, that people can see and see the, the goodness of God. And one of the things you see about this ark is the way that it's constructed. It's small enough, it's small enough, and it has poles. Why do you think that is? Because it's intended to be mobile. 
It's intended to be carried around. So the glory of God, the presence of God, it just tells you something about God, that God wants to be amongst his people, that God wants to go with you wherever you go, that God isn't going to be on the top of some mountain that you have to travel a long distance to go to, but that even from the ark of, that the, the fact that it's mobile is that, that God wants to be amongst us. How does this remind us of Jesus? But Jesus is Emmanuel. When Jesus shows up, he is God with us. God wants to be amongst his people all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the ark represents this very fact that God is a God that wants to be with us. When you looked at the ark, you also saw on top of it that it had these cherubim, these angels, and they were bowing down, and their wings reach across on one side, and they reach across on the other side, and they touch. What is this symbolic of? To the Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see this symbol of angels bowing down, it represents God's holiness. When you look at Isaiah chapter 6, or you look in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 4, you see these pictures of these angels. In, in Isaiah, there's these huge seraphim. They have six wings and all these eyes, and they're huge. And Isaiah's looking up at them like, I'm freaking out because of these huge things. But then these things bow down to something even bigger that is on a throne. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This... This Ark of the Covenant, these wings represent how awesome God is, how holy God is, how mighty God is. God is holy. It also represents one more thing. It's letter C in your notes, and it's that God is merciful. If you look at the Ark of the, the, the Covenant, what, what, when you describe in the Old Testament, they would put it in the temple, in the tabernacle of God, in the specific place, in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest on Yom Kippur would go in on the, on, the, on the Day of Atonement. They would go in and they would make atonement for all the people's sins once a year. And it would happen on the Ark of the Covenant. It had, in between these angels, was called the mercy seat. And that was where they would do these sacrifices. And they would go to find forgiveness from this forgiving God. So we see in this Ark of the Covenant, this representation of a God who wants to be with us, who is holy, mighty, big, awesome, OMG, I can't even believe it, and he's merciful. He loves his people. He's forgiving, all in this symbol, so that the, the, the Jewish people would always remember this about their God wherever they went. How is this all representative of Jesus? Jesus is among us. Jesus is holy and mighty. The angels, when they cry out in Luke chapter 2, they say, glory to God in the highest, right? And, 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 they're, and they're crying out and they're saying, like, like this, God is holy, he's big, he's amongst us. And then they say, he's merciful, they say, and he came to bring peace on earth to those who, who, who he finds favor with. In other words, those who would find forgiveness in Jesus would have peace with God finally, would be reconciled to God. So you have this Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, and it represents, it represents all of these things, just like Jesus is, a, is an even better representation of all these things. 
The other thing you need to know from the story is that back a thousand years before Jesus was born, you had Israel and you had the Philistines, and they were always fighting together. They were like, they were like the big rivals. They were like the L.A. Dodgers and the, and the San Francisco Giants, right? Big-time rivals. They were like in the 80s and 90s, the L.A. Lakers and the Boston Celtics, right? You guys remember that? You might have, if, if, you're a, if you're a millennial, then watch 3030 about it. It'll tell you all about it, right? <laughs> What's the hockey? Is there a hockey rival? No one cares about hockey here or cats? Cool. We're going to get along really well, right? Or it's like UCLA and USC. Do we got any, US, any rivals in here? US, USC, UCLA, right? That, that's the idea. The Philistines and Israel. Probably the most famous story about this is David and Goliath. David is an Israelite, and Goliath is a Philistine giant, right? And we get the idea of the David and Goliath story of Israel, and you have the Philistines always fighting with each other. When you get to 1 Samuel in the Bible, 1 Samuel records a time at the end of the Judges, right before Israel has kings. Samuel represents kind of the last judge. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and in this section, we're going to see that, that this story represents the return of God's glory. When we say the return of God's glory, what does that mean? That means that somehow the, God's glory departed, and now it's going to return. And that's what this whole story is about. And it, it starts in 1 Samuel 2, 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. These, these, their, their name was Hophni and Phinehas, Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli was the chief priest, he was older, and he was in charge of all the priests, and then Phinehas and Hophni, they were his sons, and they were adult sons, they're probably, yeah, you, you don't even get to be a priest until you're 30, so they're like, probably like 30s or 40s, and they're not good, they're not doing a good job, they don't follow the Lord. What this is in the story, it starts in this way. It's like, have you ever watched a movie and they kind of give you, they, t- they tell a little bit of a story, but that little symbolism tells the bigger picture? What we're seeing is, is that the leaders of Israel are lost. They're not connected to God. They're not following God. And that's a representation of all of Israel. At this time, the people had drifted far away from God. They weren't following God. They, had, they didn't know what the significance of the Ark of the Covenant was. They didn't know any of these things because they were so wrapped up in everything else that was going on around them. They were worldly. So we see, we see and, Hophni and Phinehas represent Israel is lost. And then they go to battle with the Philistines. That's normal for them. They go to battle one day with the Philistines, it records. And then on day one, the, Israel, the Israelites are losing really bad. Lots of people die from Israel. And the way that they did war, right, they, during the daytime they would go fight. And then at night, they kind of had a gentleman agreement, they would go back to their camps. So day one, they go out and Israel is just losing. Uh, the Philistines are looking good that day. All the momentum is in their favor. And Israel is just bummed out. They go back on day one, and they're trying to figure out, like, what went wrong? They get a bright idea. Someone decides, let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. This good luck charm. We can't lose if we have this good luck charm with us. And they take it into battle on day two. They go out into battle with this thing. They're totally abusing what it really represents. And God is not going to be played. God is going to discipline Israel. 
How many of you guys are parents and you know there's a difference between punishing your kids and disciplining your kids? When we punish our kids, we're trying to get them back for what they did. When we discipline them, we're trying to teach them and instruct their hearts for future good behavior. God is a God who will discipline his children because he loves them, and that's what's going on here. So they go out on day two thinking that they're going to win a huge victory, but they don't. They lose. Lots of people die. And the Philistines, who are polytheistic, they have many gods. What they do is they go in and they conquer a land, and they take their statues of their gods, and they try to bring them into their own land and have them serve them. So they capture the Ark of God, and they take it back to their Philistine land. One messenger lives from Israel. He runs literally, it's like 20 miles. Any of you guys marathon runners? This dude fights a battle, wins, and runs a marathon, and then goes back, and he's telling everybody, we lost, and all these people are dead, and, and Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. You have to realize, it would be like somebody coming to the United States, defeating us, chopping down the Statue of Liberty and taking it away. Would that, would that freak you out? Our symbol of freedom, that's what's going on. They, he comes to Eli, and he goes, the, the messenger goes, your two sons are dead. And he goes, oh no, right? And Israel's defeated. Oh no, and the Ark of God has been captured. He falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. Such a big deal overheard Phineas's, it turns out Phineas's wife has been pregnant. And she hears this bad news about her son and her father-in-law, and she goes into labor in this tent. And she has this baby boy, and, and there's complications, and she dies during pregnancy. And before she dies, she speaks out, and she says, they go, what will you name this boy? She says, name him Ichabod. It means God's glory has departed because the ark of God has been captured. They realize the, the symbol of the glory of God is gone. What they didn't realize is they hadn't been represent they haven't, they haven't been paying attention to the glory of God for a long time. But somehow when this symbol leaves, it's like they snap out of it and they go, the glory of God is gone. Well, where do you think it's been when you guys were just doing whatever you wanted with your lives? The glory of God wasn't, hasn't been around for a while, but no, the symbol meant something to them. Then the story clicks over, and we see the ark goes into the Philistines. They take this ark of God, the Philistines, they don't know what to do with it, and they take it, and they put it in, 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 uh, in Ashdod, one of their chief cities, and they put it next to Dagon, one of their main gods. And this Dagon is supposed to represent like harvest and, and good luck. And he was also their chief God. I think they thought, we'll put the Ark of God next to Dagon. Some people believe maybe they were showing off like, ah, we beat you. You know, you're, look at your God next to our God, this little crate versus, you know, our huge cool Dagon statue. Some people believe. Some people believe maybe they thought the Ark of God was going to serve them now, and they're like, hey, Dagon, show, show Israel's God the ropes. Like, show them how things, we do things around here. Well, I don't know what, what their true intention was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know the next morning, they, they walk into the temple, and Dagon is face down in front of the Ark of God. <laughs> and the people are like, whoa, was there like an earthquake? What, what happened? Was there a wind that we didn't even feel last night? And they, they went and they got the Dagon lifters, and the Dagon lifters come over and they put Dagon back up there next to the Ark of God. 
They go, this won't happen again. The next day, they wake up, and Dagon is face down, and it says, not only was, did his head and his arms and his legs break off, it says they were cut off, like they did to kings when they went into, it was, it been, like it was it's a, this is miraculous. They, they started to realize, maybe we can't control Israel's God. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we bit off more than we could chew. Not only that, all throughout the, this, this Ashdod, people started getting tumors and sores. These start, people started freaking out. They're like, send it to Ekron, that's the next city, right? Let, them, let it bless them for a little while, right? And they send it to Ekron. They're like, we don't want it. They started getting all this pestilence. They send it to the next city. So basically, the Philistines are playing hot potato with the Ark of God for seven months. Kids, you ever play hot potato? It's because you don't want it. You want to pass it, right? And they do this for seven months, nothing gets better, and they realize, we better send this thing back. And so they put it on a cart, they build a cart, and they put it on this cart, and they send it back to Israel. And they send it back to the city that's the farthest away from Jerusalem, 30 miles from Jerusalem. And it shows up in Beth Shemesh, right? And it, and it shows up there. And the people are excited because the Ark of God is back, but they haven't been reading their Bibles. They don't know what to do with this thing. And they, th- what would you do? You get the Ark back from those, those dreaded Philistines. I wonder if they stole anything. They went over and they opened it up to look inside, and a bunch of them died. And they started freaking out, like, we don't know what to do. Like, who could stand in the presence of God? And it stays in that city 30 miles away. From Jerusalem, it stays there for a whole generation. Think about that. The glory of God has departed. It came back, and we're going to leave it on the outskirts for a whole generation. If you're a Bible guy, all throughout Saul's whole reign, it stayed out in this outskirts. And then as we know, David became the king. When David became the king, he got it in his heart. No, I want to bring the glory of God back to the city of God called the city of David, also known as Bethlehem. So he, he gets together this group of his buddies. They learn a bunch of worship songs. They come up with a plan, and they go to grab this, this, this ark. They grab the ark, and they, they, they build a fresh cart. They build a cart, and they put it on there. And they, and they start singing songs, and they're all excited, and they're walking with this cart. And the ark of God. They're going down a little hill. They hit a couple rocks. It starts to stumble. It starts to tip over. And then one of the men who's Uzzah, who's holding this, reaches out to stop the ark. He heals over dead. David is distraught. David is angry. David doesn't know what's going on. We just wanted to do something good. And look what happened. David leaves the ark in Beth, it's Beth-Jerim or Kiriath-Jerim. I forget the name of the city, but it's not Jerusalem. It's not where they intended. And he leaves it there. He goes back to Jerusalem, the city of David, and he's, he's just bummed out. He says he's angry with God. Let me ask you this. What do you do when, when hard things happen and you get angry with God. Don't, don't tell me you've never been angry with God. That just means you're not trying, right? Because life is hard, and sometimes things don't go our way, and they don't make sense. But what do you do in that moment? David's facing this moment. And then he hears that the city 
is being blessed where the ark of God is. For three months it's there, and he's like, they're being blessed. And David realizes, maybe the ark isn't the problem. Maybe God isn't the problem. Maybe it's us. So he starts reading the Bible. He studies the scriptures. He reads this in Numbers 4, 5, and 6, which they all should have memorized when they were growing up. But they didn't. It just gives you a representation of how bad things have gotten. It says, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of blue and they shall put poles in it. That's why there's gold rings in there because you're supposed to put poles in it. Only the Levites are supposed to carry the ark and it's supposed to be carried on poles. David gets super excited. He goes back and he decides, I'm going to bring the glory of God back to the city of God, but this time I'm going to do it God's way. He repents. He gathers the people. It tells us in 1 Chronicles 15, Then David summoned the priests of Zedek and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. Aminadab, if if I'm pronouncing those wrong, they're wrong, I'm right. And said to them, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to his rule. They realize If we do it God's way, perhaps, perhaps it will work. So David gets priests. He goes back. He he builds poles. He puts it on poles. And it says they they grab this ark. Imagine this moment. I mean, talk about tension, right? Some bad stuff have happened. You think you got it right, but you're not 100% sure. They don't know. They never, they didn't read the Bible of how things turn out, right? And they pick up this, this, this thing on poles And they carry it, and they go like this. One. You good? I'm good. Two. Still good? Three. Four. Five. Six. I can't go anymore. And they put it down, they start partying. It says they couldn't take six steps, and they have this worship party, because they realized they weren't going to die, because now the glory of God, because of their obedience, would come back to the city of God, and everybody celebrates. And then we see in 1 Chronicles 15, it says that David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers in Shenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. Maybe we should change Tim's name to that. What do you guys think? Shenaniah. Kids, when you see Tim today, say, what's up, worship pastor Chen? Right? Chenaniah says, and the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. David and these men are walking with these special outfits, and they're walking into the city with this Ark of the Covenant. The people are all hearing about it. They're getting excited. Then in 2 Samuel 8 tells us something interesting. 
And so when David returned to bless his household after all this had happened, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, unveiling himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by these female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So what happens? Here's what I think happens. David is wearing this special outfit. He's the king. He's, everybody's heard about, right, all these things. These, these things don't, don't happen and no one's heard about it. They're bringing the ark of God. There's buzz going out throughout the town. What do you do when the president shows up to town? I mean, the secret service comes. They make sure everything's fine. It was like that in that day, too. People would line the streets. People are looking for a parade. David is wearing this kingly robe. If David walks into the city wearing his kingly robe, who's going to get all the glory? I mean, they already, when, when David defeated Goliath, they said he, 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 he defeated his tens of thousands, right? David knew this. So what does he do? I don't know for sure, but I think the reason what he does is he takes off this linen ephod. He takes off his kingly robe. He throws it down. He's not literally in his underwear, but he's in his basically like onesie, like a slave would work. He walks into town, the king, he walks into town in his underwear, his wife at the time looks at him, and she's, she's offended. And David says later, no, I did it for him. David lays down his glory. He walks in, because who does he want the glory? He just wants the glory of God to get all the attention on this day. And so David strips down, has a party, walks in with the glory of God, because David's heart was to bring the glory of God back to the city of God in his day. And he would do anything it took to do that. Well, let me ask you this, and we'll have the worship team come back up. How many of you guys, how many of you guys, your heart's desire is to see the glory of God go famous, go, go public, go viral in our day? For me, you know what I want for Christmas? Well, I, I want some new pajamas, but after that, I want to see God glorified in our day. I would say Christmas morning, Jesus came so that God's fame would be spread throughout the land. He's devoted his whole life. He died on a cross because he was fulfilling this ultimate goal of, be, of, of the mercy seat, of a merciful God who was holy, merciful, wanted to be with us, wanted peace for those on whom God's favor rested by believing in this Jesus Christ and his atoning death. But here's the thing. If you want to see the glory of God go famous in our day, there's a couple things we learn from this story, and it's the last three things in your note. If we want to be living for the glory of God or living to see God be famous, letter A, we need to passionately point people to Jesus. We need to have a heart like David that is passionate to see God's glory in God's city. Thankfully, we don't have an ark. We have a Jesus. 
It's even better than the ark. The ark was just a foreshadow of something better. It was, uh, it was a box. It was, could be translated a coffin. Four foot by, by two and a half by two and a half. And when Jesus shows up, just like David brought the glory of God with the ark, God brought the glory of God in a baby boy named Jesus on Christmas morning in the city of David. Do you have a, part, a heart to passionately point people to Jesus? And then let her be, we need to listen and obey. We need to listen. We need to be people who are reading the scriptures, who are listening to Bible teaching, who are, who are surrounding themselves with other people who are like-minded, who want to see the glory of God in their city. We need to be people who are listening to what God says and obeying. You're not going to see the glory of God come to our city if you're going to carry it on a cart. Why do you carry it on a cart? I would imagine that if you, you decided, hey, let's, let's, carry, uh, let's carry something. Should we put poles in it and carry it, or should we put it on wheels? How many of you guys think it's smarter to put it on wheels? But God said put it on a pole. Why should I put it on a pole? I got a better way. No, you don't. Put it on a pole because God said put it on a pole. Maybe you don't have a cart. Maybe you don't have poles. But there's plenty of things that the Bible says when we look at our lives. Are we being obedient to God's word? And then letter C is this. We need to put God's glory above our own. It's like David who takes off his robe and says, I don't need the glory on this day. What would that look like for you to put your glory aside and to live for the glory of God? To let your heart just be moved. I want to live for the glory of God. I want to obey God's word. And I want to just do whatever it takes. I don't care if if I get any recognition. I don't care. I just want him famous in my day. I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll worship, and we'll take communion. I want to thank you guys for, for, for coming, for, for going on this little Bible bus journey with me. I was hoping that we could get the Old Testament. You guys could see what I see, because I get excited when I look at it. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the story of your birth. We thank you that you're a God who desires to be with his people And God, we want to be your people. And we thank you for Jesus who came to to save us, to redeem us, and to display your goodness to us, and that you desire to display your goodness to the world through us. And God, I just pray that you would help us. I pray that the true meaning of Christmas, that Jesus came to reveal God's glory and to call some people to have that same mission, God, we just want to be those people. We pray that you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.